Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Osden, Washington Editor. Lauren Martz, Executive Director of Biopharma Intelligence. On today's podcast, the FTC is ordering Illumina to divest from its $7 billion takeout of Grail. What does it mean for industry? And what's at stake as the Supreme Court hears oral arguments in the Amgen-Sanofi case, plus how gene therapy CEOs are thinking about the competitive landscape. But first, a word from our sponsor. BioCentury this week is sponsored by Jado Capital, a leading global private equity company with a patient benefit-driven approach that finances and accelerates the development and growth of groundbreaking medical innovation. Jado empowers managers through its expert integrated multi-talented team and by investing significant capital to ensure the growth of companies building market leaders in their respective therapeutic areas with accelerated patients access globally in Europe and the US in particular. They're based in Paris with a presence around Europe and in the US. Jado has more than 500 million euros under management and a rapidly growing portfolio of investments. All righty. The FTC is ordering Illumina to divest from Grail, a company that it helped start quite a few years ago now. The FTC has found that Illumina's $7.1 billion takeout of the maker of early detection tests for cancer is likely to, quote, substantially reduce competition in the U.S. market for R&D and commercialization of cancer tests. Let's turn to our Washington editor, Steve Usden, to find out what this means. Steve. So the, the reasoning for it is that the FTC says, look, uh, Grail makes liquid biopsy tests that screen for multiple types of cancer in asymptomatic patients using DNA sequencing technology. That sequencing technology is available basically only from Illumina. There are companies that compete with Grail or would like to compete with Grail, and um, the FTC says they would be put at a disadvantage if Illumina controls Grail. This might sound a little bit familiar because the FTC made exactly this argument. An administrative law judge um, threw the case out and said that the acquisition could proceed. Now, the FTC has said, no, let's try it again. Uh, they're making very similar arguments. It's going to go to a, a different court, and Illumina is going to, uh, to challenge it. I think the real question about this is, what does it mean for the bigger picture uh, for life sciences, mergers, and acquisitions? I think it may be relevant. The outcome of this may be very relevant. For instances, when large biopharma companies acquire or attempt to acquire smaller biopharma companies that have a dominant position in, say, IP around a particular technology or modality. Let's take it apart a minute. So we look at something like a Pfizer Seagen, because I assume we're talking about big acquisitions here. We know that the Illumina one, and you know, we talk about this, it is life sciences, but it's also kind of equipment, but it's a vertical, right? Illumina has all of the sequencing machines, and then Grail comes along with a technology for liquid biopsies. 
you know, what are the parallels there uh, when Pfizer bought Seagen? Seagen has ADCs. They're not the only place to have ADCs. Lots of companies have that. So how far do you think that this has ramifications within biotech? So I, I'm going to be doing more reporting about that this week. Uh, I don't have an answer. It raises the question. I think the real question that it raises is not around something like Pfizer, Seagen, but around uh, biotech, smaller biotech companies that may really control a whole technology where they've got uh, all the IP or where they've developed a technology and they've managed to defense, put a fence around it and keep everybody else out. I, I don't want to name companies right now until I've done more homework on this, but I, I think that's really where this, this case could play directly. Separately, the FTC said last year that it may act to prevent what it believes are predatory M&A situations when large companies acquire small companies. And the FTC has a theory that they do so with the intent to kill a competitive technology, that the larger company has a product, uh, say a drug, and the smaller company has a drug that could compete with it, and the larger company buys it with the intention to bury it so that they can continue selling their, their drug. I actually haven't ever heard of an instance when this has actually happened in real life. And I think that the FTC would be challenged to actually show when this has actually happened. It's one of these things that I think happens in adjacent areas. It happens in other fields. And the FTC is just assuming that it happens in biopharma. But that's where I think it would be really interesting and really amazingly consequential for the whole sector if the FTC acts on that theory. The other thing about the Illumina Grail situation that's important to point out is that there's a parallel action that's happening in Europe. European regulators have instructed uh, or forced Illumina to, to divest uh, Grail and threaten enormous fines if they don't do that. Illumina is challenging that in the courts. They're basically saying, look, the European regulators don't even have the authority to make a decision about the antitrust implications of two U.S. companies combining. The decision in that is likely to come out end of this year or the beginning of next year, about the same time that we're going to find out what the courts think about this latest FTC action in the United States. And of course, Illumina has said that it's going to fight this as well. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. They're going to, and they're going to fight this and we're going to find out the, the result of their, um, of their challenge of this about the same time that we find out the result of their challenge of the European effort to unwind the um, acquisition. And meanwhile, Illumina is fending off perhaps the most prominent life sciences activist investor, Carl Icahn, uh, who's nominated three, or said he's plans to nominate three directors to Illumina's board. He, as he gears up for this proxy battle with the sequencing company, he has cited $50 billion worth of value destruction since Illumina has closed its acquisition of Grail. Illumina's board, of course, is recommending that its shareholders ignore Icon. So uh, Illumina, busy on multiple fronts right now. Yeah, well, you know, it is a, an iconic challenge coin or pun, and I don't think it can really be uh, ignored, but it, it's something else that the company's going to have to deal with, yeah. Yep. 
All right, Steve, thank you for that. Let's um, let's let's stay in Washington. Let's go to the Supreme Court and bring in Lauren, who was tuning into last week's oral arguments in the long-running patent dispute between Amgen and Sanofi over anti-PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies. It's a case that will affect innovation here and likely extend to other related modalities. Lauren, let's start with the PCSK9 inhibitors specifically. What does it mean for the cardiovascular drugs from Amgen and Sanofi and Regeneron? Sure. So the Supreme Court ruling will ultimately decide whether Sanofi's drug infringes on Amgen's patents. And, you know, this has been a case that has been going on for almost a decade. And this will decide whether or not Amgen has a claim to all antibodies that are targeting a 16 amino acid sweet spot, as they call it, on the PCSK9 target. So, you know, it will have a big impact on what ends up being marketed against PCSK9, what ends up getting developed against the target, and, and who makes money off of these antibodies. Lauren, in your very interesting story on this, which, as Jeff will remind everyone, you can find at biocentury.com, you sort of outlined that this is different, that most of the time the precedent has been to patent a sequence, right, that antibodies might be directed against, an amino acid sequence. And here, you're not targeting specifically the linear sequence, but you're targeting a binding side or a 3D manifestation of that, for example. Is that correct? And if so, what are the ramifications for other kinds of drugs? How, how broad is that kind of strategy? Sure. So that's right. It comes down to whether or not your claims are genus claims, which is what Amgen is, um, is trying to cover here, or whether or not you're trying to patent a very specific antibody. So what Amgen's done is they, they discovered two anchor antibodies that bind this site on this target. And they can use those antibodies, you know, when you immunize a mouse and you use competitive binding assays to try to identify new antibodies that target that site. You know, that cover those two antibodies cover the whole site, and that is a method to discover new antibodies against it. So they've patented that discovery, and as a result, the entire class of antibodies that would target that site. So that's what they're trying to gain here. And so that's not unprecedented. Genus claims exist for, for lots of other antibody targets and other modalities as well. But, you know, that is unique for a new target site. If you're trying to patent an antibody against a target site where, where other antibodies already exist, that's when it's more common to actually have the patents that are covering the specific sequences. But the reason this case, I think, was taken to the Supreme Court is to try to figure out whether or not these genus claims are something that should actually be allowed in, in antibodies specifically. So, Lauren, we've talked a little bit about antibodies. Does it go beyond antibodies? And how are you seeing this impacting innovation? Yeah, I, th I think, well, starting with antibodies, it's really going to depend on how much precedent this ends up setting. But I would argue that we've already seen the impacts of having broad genus claims on the PCSK9 inhibitor space. So, you know, beyond these two antibodies, the only other MAVs that I found in clinical development were for non-US markets. I think there were four that were in development for China. So, you know, companies have not been trying to develop antibodies against this sequence. 
But there has been lots and lots of innovation in different modalities and different mechanisms, more so than we've seen for lots of targets. So I don't know if the reason for all of that innovation is because these patents exist, but it's a potential explanation. So part of Amgen's argument in this case is that you need these kinds of patents, first of all, to help incentivize development against new targets in general and to you know protect inventions, but also that it can drive more differentiated innovation. You're not going to have a ton of companies developing very similar antibodies against the same target. You'd have to try to develop something that, that's very different in order to have patent protection. Obviously, Sanofi is making the argument that there's a lot of room to differentiate within this site and that patients benefit from having multiple options and it's actually important for innovation. And Sanofi has a, a lot of biopharma support on its side. But then I think what we'll be seeing is whether the implications go beyond antibodies. So genus claims are not specific to antibodies. There are a lot of genus claims in the CAR-T space, for example. And so, you know, some people are wondering if the ruling in this case will help determine whether or not those claims are valid and, you know, that could have an impact on the marketing of CAR T cell therapies. Yeah, I know you spoke with Kathy Williams at Nutter, McLennan and Fish, and, and she said the whole CAR T industry is going to be affected by this ruling. And when when are we expecting a ruling? Uh, is it the typical by the end of this term, June type scenario? I think so. So it's, I think, usually within 90 days, and that takes you right to the end of this term. All right. Well, we have seen a rash of gene therapies with data suggesting they may be safe and effective, and yet they've dropped out of clinical development. It's happened in multiple indications already this year in February alone. For example, we saw three of eight gene therapies in the clinic drop out of the running after Vertex and CRISPR sent their gene-edited stem cell product, Exacel, to FDA. Lauren, what's behind this trend? So I spoke with quite a few gene editing and gene therapy company CEOs and a bunch of investors in the space too. And I think what's behind this trend is the fact that pipeline strategies need to be different for gene therapies for any curative one-time treatment than they do for the more traditional antibodies and, and small molecules that, that we've seen in development. And the other part of the problem is that a lot of companies have gone for the same targets and the same indications within these gene therapy, gene editing therapy modalities. And, you know, that's an important strategy because these are new technologies with high technology risks. So going after a validated target is, is a legitimate strategy. But I think the fields are getting at the point where once something reaches the market, companies are realizing that there's possibly not a lot of market potential, you know, depending on the ind indication and, you know, several other factors, there may not be a lot of market potential for the next therapy to come along. Yeah, I really feel that this is a almost a snapshot in time of the industry. I think in five or 10 years time, we won't, we'll, we'll kind of look back and we'll go like, duh, what were they thinking? I kind of think that even a little bit, to be quite honest, because, you know, we've seen with all of the many of the new modalities, the nucleic acid ones, but in particular, like you say, with these one and done treatments, people 
going after the same diseases and for the same rare diseases, I should say. For any single company, of course, it makes sense because that is so de-risked, right? You know, that is the best way to de-risk it. It may not be de-risked, but you go with one where you've got you don't have to worry about it accessing a very difficult uh, tissue. It might be in the liver or the bloodstream. And so the same factors that make it a lower risk, you make it a lower risk for all of your competitors. I think about it a little bit like the PD-1 story where you had so many companies creating PD-1s. And it's not that all of them thought that they would get a gazillionth of the pie. They all thought that they would get a significant part of the pie and be the winner and that everybody else would fall away. So here you've got all of these companies going in and not necessarily assessing maybe realistically the competitive landscape because these are first products. Who knew which ones were going to make it first? Um, who knew when they were starting their programs or in their building their phase one or whatever, who would be ahead of them and get over the finish line because there are so many variables along the way, like manufacturing and all the things that you've been writing about. So now you have these companies and somebody else may be well ahead of them or have gotten there first. And now how are they going to get their product even tested, let alone show that it's significantly better, right? So even though obviously new patients are sadly born every day, it's still very small markets and difficult to test for. Exactly. And I think, you know, I don't know in every case if everyone was hoping to get that whole market of that rare disease. You know, it is a validated strategy to just go for proof of concept in a well-validated target or indication without expecting a big market to be there at the end. That has become an important strategy, but it's sort of a perfect storm right now of a bunch of gene therapies for these initial rare disease markets reaching the market. And also the financial situation for the industry where no one's going to pay to advance a program that is unlikely to, to face a market once it reaches the finish line. Well, you're totally right about the perfect storm, because of course, a lot of these companies may have started or started getting funded in the era when they didn't know that money isn't always free. <laughs> they got a little bit of a, a check on that, I say in the last couple of years. Mm. But as I said, I do see it as a sort of part of the growth of the industry as these new technologies come on board. And we've seen cyclically over the decades that biotech has matured the different strategies around when do you partner and you know how much risk do you put in a lead compound versus having a pipeline. And I think that this is falls in that space of sort of learning on the go, learning on the fly and needing last year's or the last era's commercial strategy for small companies, meaning you didn't really have to think about it for a long while, <laughs> may, may not really uh, work in this era. And they probably, I think your reporting suggests that they really need to be fleshing out that commercial strategy way earlier in development. Yeah. And now they're sort of faced with either discovering entirely new technologies that are differentiated enough to compete in these markets where, you know, one-time gene therapies may be available. So that's something like a gene ther therapy that can be redosed in vivo because 10 years from now, you know, we don't know where the patients who've been treated with the first generation gene therapies are going to be. Or an in vivo alternative to an ex vivo therapy, um, a way that you can avoid stem cell transplants and all the new patients who, who come along. And then the other side is 
just going after indications that gene therapy and gene editing therapy companies have have not yet decided to take the risk and tackle. And I, uh, there were some interesting comments during my discussions about what those ind- indications might be. And one I thought was interesting are, are sort of the difficult to reach therapeutic compartments are, are, are the next group of, of indications for gene therapy. So something that may be more prevalent, but that you know you don't want to have to dose people there multiple times, that there's a real benefit of, of taking the risk on developing a gene therapy there. Any examples of that, Lauren? Yeah, so um, some of the examples were indications in the eye or degenerative CNS disorders that if you can access that with one injection, there's a huge benefit to patients. Excellent. Well, Lauren's story up on biocentry.com, as well as her story on the Supreme Court oral arguments and, and look for something from Steve after he does his his reporting on the Illumina affair. And also, if uh, you're looking for a little more of Mr. Usdin, coming up this week on our sister podcast, The BioCentury Show, Steve will be in conversation with Jennifer Goldsack. She's the CEO of the Digital Medicine Society. They will be discussing the future of digital medicine. That is available via podcast, as I mentioned, and also viewable as a webcast on thebiocenturyshow.com. That will be out on Thursday. And in case you missed it, we had a webinar that aired last week on the Inflation Reduction Act. It is available on demand, biocenturyira.com, and you can tune into that free webinar, uh, also moderated by Steve. Um, He's been a busy, busy man lately. All of our podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for BioCentury this week. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. Thanks for tuning in. We will catch you again next week.